Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. One of my current things that's been on my mind a lot that uh, I've never really experienced this in life until now, but I think many of you have experienced this, where you're trying to accomplish some basic things in your life. You want the house to be picked up, you want to be dishes, the sink to be clean, you want the laundry to be done, and you want to not be behind on your work, you want the yard to be remotely kept up with, and you want to have sleep, and that it is impossible to have all of those things at one time. And I used to think that that was just like, you know, the bare minimum. It's like once you got those done, then you worked on the other projects. That's when you worked on, oh, you know, I'm going to get some reading done. Or, oh, you know what, we're going to make some home improvements. But we're at a stage in life where it just feels like it's like a battle just to get that bare minimum of things done. Have any of you been in that phase of life before? Yeah. <laughs> Can I get an amen from the Williams family? Um, so... Um, I don't know how long that phase will last, but one of the things that I was thinking about with this sermon and with that connected is, do you ever feel the same way about your walk with Christ? Do you ever find yourself thinking, hey, I get it. I know the Bible says that people go through hard times, but those are like the missionaries, you know? Those are the people that are like in Africa or in Russia. That's what they signed up for. You know, I signed up for, I know I'm going to get some trials, but I kind of, I was thinking it would be, there'd be a little bit more of it that wouldn't be so hard all the time or such a fight all the time, such a battle just to, just to do some of the basic average Christian stuff, okay? Um, if you've ever felt that way before, I think this sermon will, um, I don't know if it will encourage you, but I think it will make you not feel like you're alone is one thing I can say that I think it will think. So we're in Daniel. Uh, we're in the, the book of Daniel, and as I said at the beginning of the series, you give me any excuse to put a cool-looking lion on my sermon title, I'm going to do it, and uh, that's going to pay off today because we're going to be reading probably the most iconic story in the, in the book of Daniel, which is Daniel and the lion's den in chapter 6. So if you want to turn with me to Daniel 6, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but we're going to read a good bit of it. So we see um, at the very beginning of the chapter, I'm not... I, verses 1 through 4, you just get the idea that we've got this new king, and he has appointed leaders of his new kingdom. And right from the get-go, Daniel already has some people that are frustrated with his position, that he's in such a high place. And so they're coming up with schemes to try and figure out a way to, to get Daniel out of there, to, to have him not be uh, you know, in charge of them anymore. So verse 5, Finally, these men said, after, after looking and trying to find ways to trap him, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. His work performance is great. We can't get him there. His morality, whatever they view as morality, you know, it's fine. We've got to attack him with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree to anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you. We've got this great idea. How about for 30 days we do this thing where everybody just chooses that they pray to you only. Uh, your majesty shall be... Oh, anyone who doesn't do this 
your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians. This is something that I don't quite understand. Couldn't really figure it out. But for some reason, if it gets put into writing, then even the king himself can't really change it according to this story. It's like, well, it's in writing. Um, And so they said, put it into writing, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Um, One of the things that you're supposed to recognize is that chapter 3 and 6 are a pair. You've got the story of Daniel's three friends uh, who faced the fiery furnace, and now you've got Daniel, and they're both going through a very similar situation. Will you bow to this idol? And then we've got now them trying to trap Daniel over here. But the thing that uh, you're going to see tons of similarities, but the coolest difference, in my opinion, is the fact that the story with Daniel's three friends was about how they were being told to do something that they knew was wrong. And now Daniel, his situation is he's being told to stop doing something that he knows is right. Does that make sense? The three friends were being told, you need to bow down to this statue. And they said, we're not going to do it. And in this story, Daniel's being told, you need to stop doing this good thing of praying to your God. And so it's, it's cool how we see these two stories are very similar, and yet they still have some cool differences. In verse 14, or what happens between these two stories is you have Daniel goes home and there's basically no explanation of whether what Daniel's going to do besides, I'm going to pray. I'm going to keep doing what I do. I pray three times a day, every day. I'm going to keep doing that. And the three, and the, the people, as they suspected, they, they, trap, uh, they trap Daniel and they catch him doing it. And so they come to the king and they tell him, all right, we found somebody, this Daniel guy, one of your rulers, he's praying to his God. So... You got to kill him. You got to throw him into the lion's den. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. This is another thing that's really unique about this story. You're going to notice with Nebuchadnezzar, he wasn't, didn't have any problem throwing the three friends in there. But in this story, there's multiple times where King Darius is kind of bothered by this. He's not happy. He's really hopeful that Daniel makes it. It's kind of an interesting wrinkle. Uh, If any of you are like, why is that happening? Let's come to Wednesday night class because I don't really know, but I think it'd be something worth chewing on. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. He is trying really hard to save Daniel. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. Can't change it. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. Um, You're supposed to imagine that back then, uh, these kings probably enjoyed hunting lions, you know, and royal people. It was kind of like an exotic game hunt, so to speak. So you'd have people that their job was to round up these lions and probably put them in some kind of, uh, you know, walk them into some kind of cave. Uh, where there was like an entrance from the top, but maybe, maybe a door on the other side that they could open and shut. And you're supposed to imagine that part of the fun of the hunt was these lions to be very, you know, aggressive. Uh, these lions are probably not getting treated like lions at the zoo, if, if you know what I mean. They're not getting a great meal every day. Oh, well, don't worry. I'm going to get a, you know, like a slab of meat tossed on the rock every once in a while. They're, they're probably kept just given just enough food to keep them alive, but just not enough for them to stay very aggressive for hunts or for situations like this uh, to uh, hurt people. So as a kid, I think I always grew up with this picture of lions, like they're in there and lions are scary, I know, but I don't think we really grasp just how much this would be pretty horrifying way to go, you know, pretty gruesome 
gruesome way to go. And so uh, he's thrown into the lion's den, and the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth. Did they? Uh, yeah, okay, sorry, I'm not keeping up. Um, so when the king, all right, a stone was brought. And placed over the mouth of the den, uh, of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles. Basically saying, like, hey, I commissioned this. Uh, don't don't move this stone, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. King Darius is really rooting for Daniel. And we don't necessarily get any... One of the things I, I want to pause before I keep reading is, this is unique about the story, but with Daniel's friends, we have at least a little bit of them talking. We have a little bit of them saying, hey, listen, we're not going to bow down to your statue. But in this story, we just don't hear anything from Daniel. We're not getting anything. Is he scared? Is he confident? Is he like, I'll be fine. I'm not worried about it. We don't know. And I think that's one of the beauties, one of the beautiful things about the Old Testament is there's oftentimes in stories where we would love to get more details. We would love to fill in all the details of exactly what's going through Daniel's mind. But this is what's cool. This is where you and I get to say, well, I think this is what's going through his mind. And all those options are okay. You know, they leave that for us to engage in the story. What would we be doing if we were in this situation? How would we be feeling? What do we hope Daniel's doing? So, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. Daniel, we're getting so many details about the king. We're getting zero details about Daniel. But with the king, we're getting, he can't sleep. He's just so distraught. His anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. I guess that's just how you greet people. That's with Nebuchadnezzar, with this. Every time you talk to the king, you start with, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. Keep this in mind. Do not picture that God came and gave all the lions sleeping pills. Okay? I think what you're supposed to see from this picture is that these lions were hungry still. These lions were wanting to get him still, but God shut their mouths. That's, what I, that's how I want to interpret it. I don't want it to be this thing like in, uh, you know, in Veggie Tales where the lions are just like, all right, I'm chilling out now. It's, it's, these lions are hungry, and God held their mouths shut. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And then Daniel was lifted from the den. No wound was found on him because he had trusted his God. Just like when the three friends leave the furnace, it says, not even a hair on their body was singed from the fire. It was completely protected. Then we get this kind of little gruesome detail that I'm going to skip over about how the king takes his officials and he throws the people that sentenced Daniel and he throws them in the lion's den. And it says that they are killed before they even touch the ground. And so part of why I'm bringing it up now, even though I didn't put it up here, is because it's the same pattern as the story before. The king asks his officials to push the three friends in the furnace and the three friends are fine, but the people who push them in the furnace get killed by the fire. These people who are interested in Daniel's undoing, they're the ones that now we see the lion. It wasn't that the lions weren't hungry anymore. It wasn't that they weren't sleepy. It was that God was shutting their mouths. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language and all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear 
and reverence the God of Daniel. All the other kings in the story have said, you need to respect Daniel's God or like add Daniel's God to your litany of other gods. This is the first time in Daniel where the king is saying, you got to really worship this guy. You've got to revere and fear this God. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. King Darius couldn't save Daniel. Remember, that's part of the story. He's trying everything he can to say, I don't want this to happen. And yet, because of it's written in the decree, he can't. But not, that's not limit of our living God. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heaven and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Okay, so as has been the point of every chapter that we've read so far, it's still the point today. Don't leave here today without forgetting this is the point. Kings come and kings go. But God is still sovereign in every situation. Nebuchadnezzar was king. God was still sovereign. Darius is, or Belshazzar was king. God is still sovereign. Darius is king. God is still sovereign. In all of Daniel, we get these poems. You have a poem in chapter 2 where Daniel praises God, thanking him for helping him interpret the dream. In Daniel 4, we get a, a, a poem by King Nebuchadnezzar praising God. And now in 6, we just had this beautiful poem. And in all of them, the premise is the wonder and awe of the fact that the living God, the God of the Israelites, is sovereign. That He is the ruler of heaven and earth. He's the one that decides when kings rise and fall. He's the one that's really in charge. And so this question that's been my on the title slide, it said Daniel and it said, who is the true king? Every week, week after week, the answer is, doesn't matter what it looks like who's in charge. God is the one who is the true ruler of what's going on. And one of the things that I think... Um, we're supposed to see, or at least for me, this is something that I think is very cool, is this story is unique in a lot of places in Scripture in the fact that Daniel and his friends represent followers of this living God in the courts of the greatest rulers on earth. You know, in, in, all, in many of the other settings in the Bible, if there is a king situation, it's often the king of Israel is not doing what they're supposed to do, the king of Judah. This is a story where God's followers are in the kings of the greatest empires that have ever been. And we're seeing them say, yeah, all this, you're still not in charge. Our God is the one that's still in charge. And it, for me, another point before I, I move on is one thing I like to say often, we like to act like when we do mission trips, for any of you who have ever gone on a mission trip, we like to act like we are bringing God to a new country. They don't know who God is, and so we're going to bring God there. Daniel reminds us, God is there. God is in charge, and God is sovereign. But it is up to us as his followers, like Daniel, to be the one that helps take the veil away from people's eyes to go, oh, well, no, God's here. You see what, what's going on. Like, God has always been and always will be every part of the world. God's in the Middle East. God's in Africa. God's in China. God's in the United States. It's up to us as missionaries like Daniel, to say, no matter where we are, our job is to look at the kings and the emperors and those who aren't kings and emperors, wherever we go, and say, you may not see it, but I'm telling you, God is the one that's at work here, okay? And I'd encourage you to, to point to him. So, like with last week, I told you what is the point. The point is the kings come and go and God is still sovereign. But something I'd like you to take away from this story that I think is really important, and it's the, the main thing that 
stood out to me when I was reading this this week. Um, uh, or, so when I was in Colorado, I read a book that I referenced last sermon, and now I'm going to reference it again because I was, as I was reading the book, I was like, oh, this could go with Daniel too. And the idea is, is that in Daniel, the lions of Daniel... I want to talk about the lions of Daniel and the lions that we see today. Because in, I, in this story, I see two lions, okay? There are the lions that are in the pit, and then there are the lions of the people that are trying to bring about Daniel's downfall. These people in the story are doing what they can to try and bring about Daniel's downfall. And I want to say that I'm going to talk about something right now that is out of my comfort zone. I am not fluent in talking about this. I want to talk about spiritual warfare for a little bit, for those of you who don't know that term. I grew up COC, and so I don't have very much, like my list of minutes I've spent talking about the Holy Spirit and about spiritual warfare, about angels, demons, that, that is way low compared to a lot of other people because we just didn't talk about it when I was growing up, okay? It's kind of all hocus pocus, okay? But what I want you to hear me say today is that in our modern world, many people hear stories in scripture about this idea of spiritual forces, and it just sounds like I can't buy that. We have many people in our modern world who would say there are one, there's one power in this world, and it is us people, there are many people in this room, including myself, who have spent most of our lives saying, no, 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 y'all are wrong. There are two powers in this world. There's God and there's us. And God's power is way up there and ours is way down here. Okay? Y'all following along? What I'm here to tell you is that Scripture, in my opinion, points to the truth that that is not fully correct either. That in this world there are three powers. There is the power, the one that's greater than everyone, the one that's sovereign, God, and then there are two lesser powers, which are us as people contributing to what's going on, and there are what I'm going to just call the enemy. Some of you may get caught up in the word the devil, demons, Satan. I don't want you to get caught up on that. What I want you to get caught up on is that there is a third power in this world that is the enemy, that is eager to try and thwart what we're doing. And for some of you, you may be thinking, uh, okay, Drew, um, I get it. When I read scripture, the Bible says that there's an enemy. The Bible says that there's, but I just don't see that ever in this world. If you'll bear with me, I want to list out some things. This may take a minute, okay? How many of you have ever felt an enemy whenever you've seen that you've been dealing with a fragile marriage, your own or your friends, a troubled child, a mean, cruel boss, an irritating coworker, a social media feed, a traumatic past, a growing addiction, a failed dream, a stack of bills, a life regret, a closet of shame, a mental illness, a lack of friends, a social snub, a forgiveness that hasn't been extended, a cancer diagnosis, a sin that hasn't been confessed, a grudge that continues to be nurtured, and the list could go on and on. Now what I'm telling you is, you and I can sit here and we can deliberate all we want. Wait, is that me and my bad choices? Is that the enemy? And the point I'm trying to tell you is, I don't think we can look at this world and not see the truth that there is an enemy that is trying to break us from what God wants us to do. And we see it really clearly in the story of Daniel 6. The lions in the pit... Yeah, that's the key in the story that we always stick to. But we see the real lions in the story are these people that are at work to try and get Daniel off his path. So I'm going to read. I apologize. This is a long quote. I just felt like it was too good not to. This is from the book that I was reading while I was in Colorado. This is from Richard Beck. I hope that you can follow along. I'll try and read it slowly. 
Life is a never-ending series of moral challenges and choices, and you don't get a moment off. There is no halftime or timeouts. Act or refuse to act. Each decision determines your destiny, the moral arc of your life. The darkness is always close at hand, and we fight it off hour by hour. The skeptical world doesn't get this. The moral intensity and urgency of life, but the Bible sure does. As it says in 1 Peter 5, 8, Discipline yourselves. Keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around, looking for someone to devour. We've all felt it. The moist, hot breath of the predator on our necks as we've stood alone in the darkness. The Christian life isn't just about moral self-improvement or getting your team to win the next election. Our days are spent in the spiritual trenches, in the private dramas of our lives, where we stand at the moral crossroads over and over again, choosing to do the next right thing. Spiritual warfare isn't spacey, naive, or kooky. If you're honest, you'll see the truth. You're in a fight. All I can say from this story is when I read this and I think about this, um, I think a lot about how we think, as an average Christian, it's the missionaries out there. They're the ones that are in the warfare. It's the missionaries out there that are in Russia and China, that they're the real ones that are constantly at odds of what should I do, what should I not do. And yet, if we're being honest with ourselves, we face this every day. We face this when we're trying to raise our kids. What should we do? We face this when we're trying to heal a broken relationship. What should we do? We face this, like with the friends in Daniel 3, when the world tells us, you've got to bow down and worship this other thing. And we say, I don't think I should do that. We face this when the world says, don't do these things that God would want you to do. Don't forgive. Don't have integrity. Don't worry about it. What is the truth? You have your own truth. And we find ourselves constantly at these crossroads over and over. And what I want to tell you, and the thing that, in my opinion, is the, is the takeaway point, is that in the story, Daniel, he stands firm. But you know what? He still needs a God who comes in and shuts the mouths of the lions. And so that's my call to you. For us to be people who stand firm, as Ephesians 6 says, put on the full armor of God. Stand firm. Our, our enemy is not against flesh and blood. Our enemy is against the powers of this dark world. And to stand firm. I love, I, in Ephesians 6, when it says, uh, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Ephesians 6, it says, <laughs> Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, which we know is skirmishes are happening all the time, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And then I love this. And after you have done everything to stand. I love that it's just this repetition of, I want you to stand your ground. And when you're getting beat up, stand your ground. And when you've done all that you can, stand your ground. But what I want to tell you is, is that the good news for us, if you find yourself thinking that the moral of this sermon is, we will face evil because of how good you stand, that's not the takeaway. We are called to stand, but the reason we're going to be able to escape the lions, the reason why we're going to be able to endure is because we have a God 
as King Darius says, a God who rescues and who saves, whose kingdom is a never-ending kingdom. We have a God who we see it in the ultimate culmination of his son being the one that says, I'm going to make sure that you all know that if you have a relationship with me, the end of your story is not the lion's den. The end of your story is you're going to go through the lion's den and I'm going to be there with you and I will rescue and I will save. If any of you want to learn more about this savior that we have, the one who once to be the culmination of God's truth, that He is sovereign and that He rescues and saves. I want to encourage you to come while we're going to have elders standing at the doors while we stand and sing this song.